So let me, uh, let me start off by welcoming everybody because we're all over. So hello to everyone online, on TV. Uh, if you're with me in person, hello. And whatever location you're at, hello. We started a series, it's, well, obvious, talking about what Jesus would undo. I'm going to talk about that. In order to get to that, I have to start off with something well, well rather somber, meaning I had to tell you about an, an, an accident, uh, uh, a tragedy that actually did occur in 2007. Uh, in Minneapolis, I-35, I guess, is where this at, a rush hour traffic, uh, a bridge com- completely just collapsed. Uh, some of you are from this even region, and you, you heard about this, and you remember this, but uh, according to the numbers, over 140 people were injured, uh, several people died. This was just rush hour traffic, people doing their thing in the morning, Boom. Literally everything underneath them, gone. And when you're in that situation, there's, there's not much you can do. So, of course, your mind probably goes to, like, what happened? Like, like I need to know what happened so that it doesn't happen again. And, and you might be even familiar with this, is that actually the nation began to launch into, we should look at our bridges. We, we should actually figure out what's going on, because there was a problem, and that's what this is going to bring up. What they discovered was that this bridge that had been built, I believe in 1960, had, had lasted for 40 years, but no one had really looked at like the inside of it. They, they, had, they had made sure that the, the pavement was good. I mean, over 40 years, you got to replace that pavement, so it looked good. The stripes were there. People appeared to know how to drive in which lane they needed to drive, but over time, and what they didn't pay attention to, during the construction times, they would put those giant uh, concrete things. You're welcome for that. I don't, <laughs> there's probably an official term for that. But those things, and so those would get thrown on there and would spend time on there. Like many of us know construction, like too much time, right? But they would stay there. Uh, over time, things would get added to it, and they would repave and things like that. And they actually found out that the, the inside steel wasn't designed to have weight added to it, unpredicted pressure added to it. They simply found out that the steel wasn't thick enough. They found out that when they had built it, what they had thought would happen, one being people would inspect it over time and evaluate what, like engineers, for those of you engineers, you're like, this is the worst engineer story I've heard, right? And you're thinking like, you should have thought through this. And I think they did think through this, but you have to have people lead after it, right? And, and began to have, well, this moment where people lost their lives because really all that was happening were the outside was getting the attention, the inside wasn't. It teaches us a lesson that you know. We teach kids this. If you only pay attention to the outside, what's inside will collapse, right? As a, at a young age, whether you remembered or not, you were taught this lesson. Someone brought it up and said, hey, it matters what's on the inside, and the outside isn't everything. And we're sitting there, you just picture you're probably in a circle as kids going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we grew up and said, no, it's actually a lot about the outside. I'm going to give the majority of my attention to the outside. I'm going to address the outside, make sure the outside, outside is ideal. Even if I know internally there's something broken, I'm going to portray to you what needs to be on the outside. You know this truth. This is not new. 
But I think if Jesus were to show up today and say, there's something we've got to undo, it has to do with this subject. In fact, someone even brought this up with Jesus himself, this subject. I'll take you in to the story. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They, they asked him, why do your disciples... We're already to an accusatory kind of like, why do your, our disciples, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. That's the problem. Ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Now, come on. Some of you are like, that's just good advice. I don't think COVID was there. I'm not sure. But most of us, I mean, did, did anyone else get told you had to wash your hands before you ate? Okay, a few of us did. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. So you're like, this sounds like solid advice. Like a question to bring up. Hey, we observed your disciples sitting down to eat and they didn't wash their hands. That seems like a logical problem. They weren't actually going after what some of you germaphobes are excited about. They weren't going after like necessarily the hygiene of the moment of washing hands. They were going after, remember the key word is ceremonial actually. The key word is you're not, your religion, your religion doesn't look like our religion and it appears as though your religion doesn't look right. So let me walk you into their thinking because way back then, Pharisees, religious leaders were obsessed with ceremonial cleansing. Again, some of you germaphobes are going to love this. They would quite literally wash their hands in between each course of the meal. So you're sitting down and you've got your veggies, your, your meat, or if you're vegetarian, more veggies and potato, whatever. You've got, you've got it all there. That if, let's say you're eating your potato. When you were done with your potato, they would, they would go wash their hands again. Then they would move on to the green beans and they would eat the green beans and then you, they, they would go wash their hands again. They were obsessed with this because they thought it portrayed something that they wanted you to see. I'll give you uh, how it worked. Here's how they washed their hands. They would do this. Perhaps you ever wonder why when we pray do we do this? Well, if you're a teacher and you're with kids, it's to keep the kids' hands off of each other. Now, I think, though, actually, it actually is rooted more in a ceremonial approach. And so you would wash your hands like this. And I'm not joking. You would actually put your hands like this because the danger would be if you did this, the water, when poured on your hands, would run down your arm. And if it ran down your arm, then not only are your hands just now been clean, but your arms are unclean now because it ran down on your arm. So the water, yeah, you're going, this is like crazy town, but this is how it worked. And so they would pour the water over the hands and not enough water to make a difference. Think about, a, about a, basically a, like a, a cup of water, small, and they would pour. And then when you got that done, because the water had to drip straight down, or you're messed up and you got to start over again, then you would do this and wash them again in the water so that it wouldn't run anywhere else except for on your hands, and so that you could eat with clean hands and, and do that. Now, the problem is, if your hands weren't clean, you made what you were eating unclean. If you touched anybody, if you, if you patted someone on the shoulder and said, hey, aren't the... I was going to say ribs, but they wouldn't have ribs. Sorry, uh, aren't the whatever they're eating. Uh, you, 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 if you touch them and your hands were unclean, they were now unclean. Do you see them? Like, it gets like crazy town. So they prided themselves, prided themselves 
on the ceremonial cleansing, yet the disciples are sitting down going, uh, forget that. Like, let's eat. And that really bothered the religious leaders because it wasn't, it didn't appear as though their religion was very good. So they pitched this to Jesus. Your disciples, they're not doing it right. So what would Jesus respond? Well, it was very offensive. <laughs> Jesus replied, and, and why do you? Again, not with the answer. I'm gonna, he's going to pitch this question. And why do you, by, by your traditions, because you brought up traditions, why do you, by your, your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? It, if you're new to the Bible, he just theologically punched them in the face. Because they're like, uh, we see what you're doing, and that's bad. Jesus basically replies going, no, what you're doing is bad. Well, and here's where, I mean, he, he began to spell out exactly what they were doing, and then he gets to this point. Oh, you hypocrites. I mean, it's amped up. Um, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far far, far from me. Their worship is a farce. If you're used to a different translation, it, it will say they worshiped in vain. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Their worship. He looks at them in their face. Some of us don't like to confront people. He looks at them, because this is a close conversation saying, you got a problem with what these guys are doing, washing their hands, and that's an issue to you? Well, let me bring up something else with you. Your worship is a farce. Now, most of us are like, I've never used the word farce, right? Well, it's crucial to this whole sermon. When you and I talk about what does Jesus want to undo? What does he want to get into your life and say, stop that? Don't do that anymore. That's not good for you to do. It's all wrapped up in the word farce. So here we go. This is the word I read to you. This is the Greek word that you don't fully have to remember. <laughs> but in the definition of matain, the word manipulation is there. Um, okay, so Jesus, to religious leaders, after they accuse him, like, hey, your religion doesn't look right, he confronts their worship. He can, can you imagine if I just confronted your worship? If literally I just brought that up with you, you'd be like, hey, it's between me and God. He confronts their worship, and I think it actually does confront ours. He tells them that their worship isn't really worship. It's manipulation. They are doing religion with the intentions of getting from God, controlling God. They are approaching God with worship, not for their own souls, but for what they can get from the almighty creator. It's called manipulation. Anytime you start a relationship and you lead the relationship where it's all about getting from them what you want, that's called manipulation. 
And Jesus just called it out. So I would like to present the same question to you. Has your worship become manipulation? When you go into the presence of God, however you would do that, Maybe for you, it's, you're thinking immediately about music, or maybe it's quiet time, meditation. Maybe it's when you go out into the hills and you focus on God. Whenever you engage God, and you're like, I am now talking to God, leaning into God, I'm about God right now, I want you to consider that perhaps, perhaps, I'm not, I don't know if I'm as bold as Jesus right now, because I don't know you as well to, to accuse you of this, but I wonder if your approach to God has been less worship and more manipulation. In other words, I'm going to sing to you so that I can get something from you. I'm going to talk to you so that I can get something from you. I'm going to follow you, lean into you, talk about you, go to church so that. That's the term. You want to know about manipulation? So that. So that. I think Jesus would love to undo that kind of worship in our lives. Where when you and I are approaching him, it's, oh, I'm approaching you. Oh, I love you. <clears throat> but I do have a long list of, and you better, if you don't, I don't know. So that. Uh, I am a happily married man. Uh, happily, happily. I'm very happily. Happy, happy, happy. I'm the happiest. I'm the happiest. But I will tell you, in Katie and I's marriage, we have had to fight this, and to be really vulnerable with you, uh, I at least still have to fight this, <laughs> okay? Uh, there has been times, I'm going to confess to you, that I have done the dishes so that. <laughs> Do you need me to be more descriptive? <laughs> there have been times when I have said or done so that I get something from him, or so that she does something, so that I get a break. So you see, this has been, I'm just confessing, I don't know if it's ever in any of your romantic relationships, most of you are like, no, we never deal with that. Well, I'm telling you, there are many days, even as a parent, when sometimes you're like, I'm gonna do this so that I can get a break from all that's going on in the house. Many of us do this in our friendships where we lead with, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be this kind of person, so that. See, the so that, I want you to be guarded, that that could actually be unintentional manipulation. Where, where your agenda is not like crazy impure, however it is to control that person. So you take that kind of approach, we're like, yeah, that's David, that's not good marriage stuff. You shouldn't do that. I, I agree with you. But I would contend that it's probably more toxic when it's you and God. When your approach to God, your worship of God, you're about God, whatever reason you're claiming, if it's about getting what you want, I'm telling you, there's even, there's even preaching out there, religious leaders who will tell you, do this so that you get this from him. That's manipulative. And I think that erodes your bridge to where then pressure begins to come down on you in life and your view of God is, I was, I was good. We were good. We made the right decisions. Why is this happening? And if you've ever asked why God's not blessing you because you've been so good, perhaps manipulative worship 
has been a part of how you've worshipped God. And I think Jesus wants to undo that. So let's, let's go uh, a little bit further uh, Jesus was talking about this, but then time passes, and you've got a Christian writing other Christians really about the same topic. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, this is, this is your true and proper worship. You see, they're still dealing with what's like real, authentic worship. And for many of us, like, I know what it is. It's like this kind of music, whatever it is. And some of you are like, I wish there was like country music that was worship. And you're like, no, there never should be that. If it exists, stop it. Uh, many of us are going, oh, oh, no, no, no. It's not about the music style. It's about the preaching style. You have to have a certain preacher say it in a certain way. And, and, and that's... That's the, real, that's the real kind of style of preaching I need. Or maybe it's just church in general. Or, or maybe it's an environment. Whatever your environment is, you're like, no, no, no. That's like the real stuff. That's like the real, authentic, real, like legit kind of stuff. And you're thinking in your mind, style. Meanwhile, the verse I just read to you did not address style. <laughs> I mean, you can have your preferences, but be careful. So here's the lesson in some of this here. Worship isn't a style, it's a posture. That's what that verse just taught you, whether you got it or not. It's not a style. It's why some of you, and I know I love to make fun of it. I mean, my wife loves country music, by the way. And so I, I, but many of us have our own preferences and all that. It doesn't make it bad, right? But do not interpret and twist and then mold that your view of God is where you have to access him in a certain way, a certain style, certain music, certain kind of preaching, certain kind of church, certain kind of environment. No, no, no. That's called manipulation. So let's go back to that verse I showed you and, and we're going to learn. Because most of us, I'm hoping, at least by now, you're like, I don't want to have manipulative worship as a part of a way I approach the almighty God. Uh, I would like that not to be. Okay, so, so let's, go, let's learn here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, that's a part of the key to help you unlock the lock to where you can authentically approach God in worship, is to view God's mercy mercy. In other words, when you go to worship God, dwell on God, think about God, serve God, sacrifice for God, that when you're going there, you're going, I want my mind to be right. Um, what do I do? I would start with viewing God's mercy. This can become a, well, it can become a, a once a week kind of a deal for you. You can start, you're like, hey, I don't do this. It can turn into a daily thing where you wake yourself up and the first thing you dwell on is you view God's mercy. This is powerful because I, I wonder in, in, in the worship service that we've been a part of, how you started, what mind frame you were in. And most of us, when we go to church and we, maybe you're tuning in even on TV and you're like, yeah, my mind is in a lot of other places. How do I get it into the right place? How do I get my mind set? View God's mercy. Start off right there. View God's mercy. Dwell on it for just a little bit. And you'll begin to walk yourself into a non-manipulative approach to God. Uh, again, in marriage, this helps too. To view mercy, uh, I'll tell on myself, to be in any kind of relationship with me, friendship, anything like that, uh, I require mercy. I'm just going to tell you that. 
I am going to wrong you. I'm just, I'm confessing right now preemptively to everybody. I will wrong you. I will mess up. And if you and I are going to have any kind of friendship at all, I'm telling you at the very beginning, you're welcome for this. I require mercy now. Not out loud. But I wonder if in your mind, you would confess the same thing. I know some of you are like, well, no, actually, I'm pretty good. Oh, listen, listen. We all require mercy. And that is a wonderful thing to learn. I, Max Licato is a good writer. And when you're approaching God, and the, worship is the act of magnifying God. In, in view of God's mercy, not my mercy, in view of God's mercy, Worship is the act of magnifying God, enlarging our vision of him, of him, it's about him. Stepping into the cockpit to see where he sits and observe how he works. That's why the guy's written a bunch of books. He's teaching us a a posture. Here's the posture. For those of you who like, like, how do I approach worship? Refuse to ignore what God has done. Just refuse to ignore it. Anytime you enter a worship service, wake up, go to bed, as often as you want and can think about it, refuse to ignore what God has done and he has showered you with mercy. Like I said, any relationship this works. Uh, There's a trick I try, it's called 30 seconds of mercy. If I ever get mad at you, not that it will ever happen. If I ever get mad at you, before I post about it on social media, which I won't, before I email you or text you, which I'm not going to do about that, you know what I'm going to do before, if I'm ever mad at you? I'm going to spend 30 seconds dwelling on the mercy that I require from everyone I have ever been in any kind of relationship with. Try it. Be mad at someone. I mean, if you have to do it, don't do it on purpose, but if you experience it this week and you're like, man, I'm really mad at that person. Okay, immediately then retreat and say, 30 seconds, whoa, I remember this one time I, had, I required mercy, I screwed up here, and it's not that you're dwelling on your past and your shame, but you're thinking about, whoa, I have received mercy like crazy. Let me take you to the Bible. But God is so rich in mercy, it means he's got a lot of it. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead, Because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Even though we were screwing up, mercy, mercy, mercy. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. So let me ask you a very personal question. Is God's mercy enough for you? That will challenge your worship. Because many of us allow our worship to get hindered because our circumstances suck. And we look at what's happening and what's happened and what's around us and all that. We look at those details and say, yeah, I don't feel like worshiping. Well, then dwell on the mercy. And the mercy should be enough for you to be able to worship him. Let's let's go back to that verse. And it adds to this because it's not just about viewing. There's some doing. That's a good pastor way of saying it. Uh, To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Most of us like sacrifice seems intense. You know what's more intense? The living part of it. It really is. Uh, Charles Colton uh, said this once about religion, but don't, don't get caught up in just the religion. Men will wrangle for religion, write for it, fight for it, die for it, anything, but live for it. 
I actually wonder if it's more difficult to live for God than it is to have a one moment that many of us have even processed. Would I die for him? Maybe, yeah, I would die for him. But would you live for him daily and daily and day over and over and over again? This challenges our worship, doesn't it? Here's the second posture I want you to consider. Refuse to ignore what, what God wants. Not only what he's done, but what he wants. I think that's what that brought, that living part, like that I'm going to each day make decisions, not only like what I feel like, but, but what God has actually told me to do and led me to do, the truth in the Bible. I'm going to actually live this out. That's based on what he wants. Changes your worship. Jesus did this, by the way. Perhaps you remember this part when he's praying in the garden. Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. In other words, I don't like my circumstances. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus. Jesus himself, like dwelling on, on what the Father wants. If you don't remember this part, you probably have heard of the Lord's Prayer, and there's this little part in the Lord's Prayer that really will jack with us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will. Your will. So let me take you back to the original question. Has your worship become manipulation? If you would answer yes, I'm not asking you to say out loud yes. I wonder, I wonder if you'd be willing to say, I don't want that to be anymore. It's not about feeling the shame of it. It's saying, what will I do next time? What will I do tomorrow? What will I do the next day? What if I, what if I just started dwelling on God, on what he's done and what he wants? I regularly pray with my kids each day where we acknowledge that God has authority over all the hours of the day. That he made it, it's his day. He's in control. And we just submit to him as an act of worship. Don't let your worship be manipulative. I don't think you want it to be, so don't allow it to be, okay? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what a blessing to be in your presence. And Lord, would you forgive us at any time we've tried to control you, manipulate you, um, push you into some certain direction that wasn't best. Lord, we, we ask, Lord, that you would meet with us even when our hearts aren't right. Would you do a work in our own hearts. So Lord, the next time we worship you, we're going to dwell on you. What you've done and what you want, we're going to make it all about you. We pray this in your name. Amen.